Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Why don't we start by putting all of our accoutrements on the floor or wherever? sitting in a chair, come forward in your chair so you can feel your sitting bones. So you just take the buttocks and just pull the skin, muscle, whatever you keep back there away from the sitting bones so you can feel them underneath the pelvis. We'll bring the hands onto the thighs. And let's let the eyes close softly. Whatever ritual brought you here, just letting it drop. Likewise, whatever kind of day you had, afternoon process of arriving here tonight any expectations you have about tonight or residue from our last session together. Just allowing that to settle by noticing it and feeling in your body the inhale and the exhale.
notice what the tongue is doing in the mouth and give some space to the tongue. Let the bridge of the nose be wide. And with patience and sensitivity, when you inhale, feel that you're inhaling. And when you exhale, feel that you're exhaling. patience and sensitivity, feeling the breath, sensitive to the in-breath, sensitive to the out-breath. And the best way to be sensitive to the breath is to let the body feel the breath receptively. When you inhale, just inhale. When you exhale, just exhale. Breathing without adding anything to it.
spaciousness in the mouth, behind the eyes. in the breath perhaps even moments of space between thoughts spaciousness in the mind Returning again and again to the feeling of the in-breath and the feeling of the out-breath.
Now let's take a long inhale, breathing in every direction when you inhale, and then a long, steady exhale. Let the eyes open if they're closed. Nice to be here again. Is everybody comfortable? So maybe a good place to begin is both with questions about anything that we covered last week. Does anybody remember anything we did last week? (laughs) Um, or comments about anything that we covered last week. And also, I'm interested in hearing about how your homework went. What's the difference between mindful meditation and meditation? What do you mean? By meditation, when you say meditation. Well, there are lots of different things that you can meditate on. You can meditate on uh, different objects. You can meditate on a color or on the breath or a sensation in the body or whatever. Or there is formless meditation where you just sit. You're not meditating on anything. You're just trying to be totally present. There are so many different kinds of meditation. And um, mindfulness meditation is just uh, describing the technique of the meditation. And the way that we've been defining mindfulness is uh, paying attention to what's actually here, whatever is present, and trying to stay with it um, mindfully. And one of the techniques we've been using is to breathe and stay with the breath. And um, a lot of people uh, practice different kinds of meditation practices. And, um, And sometimes people like to invent their own kinds of meditation practices. People will say, oh, well, you know, for me, meditation is just doing such and such. Or when I'm doing such and such, that's like a meditation. And... um, And that's true. Uh, There are lots of different kinds of meditation you do. But it seems that there are certain um, conditioned patterns in the mind and body that really like to repeat themselves. Uh, You can think of conditioning like momentum. And uh, there are moments where we can use meditation techniques that we invent uh, to, to see into something or to find ourselves completely present. But then the momentum of conditioning comes back again, and we find the mind is then caught back into all kinds of previous patterns. So we're picking the technique of mindful meditation because mindfulness, as originally taught, had a very specific or sequential way that it was taught and practiced. And what we're trying to do in these four weeks is begin to start to get a sense of what the technique was and why it was taught in such a linear way, and uh, and how we can maybe start to practice in that way to get a sense of why it has been practiced that way for thousands of years. 
So it's by no means the only kind of meditation or the best form of meditation, um, but it seems to be uh, one of the most um, in-depth uh, um, paths of sitting meditation, um, especially sitting meditation where the goal is simply to be present with our experience. It's important to remember that in meditation practice, we're not trying to get somewhere. You're not trying to get to some utopia where finally one day you're enlightened and um, people have all kinds of fantasies about what enlightenment is. A lot of people think that one day in their meditation practice they'll finally get enlightened and they won't have (coughs) gas anymore or (coughs) headaches or whatever. And what's interesting and maybe what's compelling about mindfulness meditation is that it's pointing to awakening as something that happens in the here and now. And because we're always organizing our experience through the mind and through the body, then the best way to start to study experience is in the mind, in the body. And a lot of techniques of meditation that I've come in contact with sometimes um, uh, take us out of the body. They're trying to pull us out of the body somehow. And for certain personalities, that's very appealing. Um, But it's hard to go in the body. It's almost like saying, instead of taking a pilgrimage to the top of some mountain range somewhere, you're going to take a pilgrimage inside your own body and mind. And it's hard to take a pilgrimage inside of your own body and mind. You start walking through certain parts of the landscape of your body or your mind, and you'll find there are certain places that you just can't be there. And mindfulness meditation starts there which is saying we're using the mind and the body to see through and see into the mind and the body. And I find that very appealing, especially in a culture where uh, we're doing everything we can most of the time to get out of our embodied experience from moment to moment. And uh, so the body is usually a good place to start. But it's not the best kind of meditation or the only kind of meditation or the We're not being fundamentalist about it. Having said that, um, I think it's very important that we understand where the technique of mindfulness comes from. And that's part of the reason for the handouts that I gave you. Is um, One of the handouts is the Satipatthana Sutta. A sutta is a Pali for sutra which is the Sanskrit word, which actually comes over into English as the word suture, which is basically the tying together of a technique described in a very simple, logical way. And that technique comes from the Pali Canon, which is the earliest known recordings of the Buddha. And uh, I handed it out to you because in, in popular culture nowadays, everybody talks about mindfulness. And it's kind of nice to know where it comes from. And part of the reason for these four evenings is to to place some of the technique within the context of the theory or the philosophy or the psychology that it comes from. And I hope by the end of the four weeks we start to understand that it's really important to understand the context out of which some of these techniques come from. My opinion is that you can't pull the technique out of the context. That doesn't mean that you have to become a Buddhist or a yogi or whatever. It just means that it's important to take into 
uh, account the context from which these techniques come from, partly because some of the psychology that underpins mindfulness as a technique is a great challenge, I think, to some of the ways we do clinical work, think about clinical work, practice clinical work, um, and our own experience of our minds and bodies. So that's why it's nice to kind of have that uh, cross-cultural or transdisciplinary perspective. And I'll respond more to your statement because it's, it's important. Maybe we'll talk about it for three weeks. <laughs> Anybody else? Tell me about your homework. Put up your hand if you practiced your homework as prescribed. Wow. As prescribed. Oh, okay. Practice your homework as prescribed. Okay. Practiced your homework. Invented your own homework. <laughs> Abandoned it altogether. That's pretty good. So, how many of you were able to really stay with the very simple technique of following the breath and also being aware of sensations in the body? Put up your hand. How many of you had the intention of working with that technique and improvised? Honestly. <laughs> So what did you notice? Tell me what you noticed. Improvise? Well, the mind is highly creative. And it will try and squirm its way into taking any technique and turning it more into what it wants to see happen than to actually try and struggle with the technique. I'm not talking about us whether we're, success, we're successful at it, but we make an attempt. Yeah. Yeah. And in the attempt, if you invented your own instructions, are you really able to stay with the formality of the instructions that I offer? Try to. Try to. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. That's what I mean by momentum. Yeah. That all of us are conditioned in unique ways. And the thing about that conditioning is it tends to repeat itself over and over. And you set up an intention that briefly suspends the conditioning. And then a little while later, the conditioning comes back again. So you try and set up this alignment in the heart. And then five minutes later, you're <laughs> back here again. And, uh, and this is all we're noticing. We're noticing that happening. Yeah. Yes. 
Your neck and shoulders getting stiff. Yeah, and I slipped quite a bit. And a couple of times I got quite anxious. Yeah. Yeah. And it took miles to bring myself back to it. But you know, um, how hard it is to be still. Yeah. Physically. Physically, yeah. Yeah. And I found that um, everything else around me was quiet. It really helped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Sure. So, when you feel anxiousness when you're sitting, what is anxiousness? What does that mean? Um, I sit probably in my chest area to feel attention. Yeah, and I didn't think that was really connected to what I was thinking. I was trying to... Like, I find the comment that someone made about yoga about trying to kind of breathe through. Yes. I find myself wanting to do that because that's what I've done for many years. Yes. So I kind of struggling a little bit with that. Yes. So there were sensations in the body. Yes, there were definitely. Yeah. 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 But you stayed with it. And did it stay to the end? No, it came. Did anybody have this experience that discomfort came and then went? And then maybe came again? Went again? Came again? Went again? So there's two things we're noticing. One is, because everybody's heads are nodding, that there are sensations in the body. They're always present. And that they're coming and going. No matter how acute they are, they're coming and going. And it's hard to leave them alone. We want to pick them up and do something with them. Yeah. And this exercise can be especially frustrating if our tendency is to always do something with sensations in the body. Yeah. Yeah. If um, these fruit flies are about in, in the house and uh, every night I'm on my nose, Maybe when you you uh, speak, you could just stand up because I know that the angles in the room require acoustic plan. One of the things for me was that I found that I was naming. So when it, when my mind would go off, I'd come back by naming, sort of in out, and then I realized that I was getting caught up in the naming and not actually in the sensation of just breathing. Yeah. And that was my challenge. That was one of the things that I found hard. Yeah. Sometimes a technique like naming is really helpful. 
but it wasn't in the instructions. No. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, it's hard to stay with sensation without superimposing on our experience language. Did anybody notice this? There's kind of like an ongoing story happening all of the time. Yes? Um, well, I have an example of that, and I'll stand up also. Um, I was meditating, and I had an uncomfortable sensation that I, I believe it was a twinge in the back. And right away, my mind kicked in and said, oh, this is unbearable. And um, so the thought came up, I looked at it and let it go, and then the sensation dissipated. And um, it came back to me something you said last week, Michael, about anxiety, um, about how when anxiety is labeled that it exacerbates it. So when I came out of the meditation, I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? I just diagnosed myself <laughs> by saying the thought is unbearable. But once, um, once the thought was let go of, then the sensation dissipated. Mm -hmm. that, that was my experience. I find myself struggling with sleep. Sleep. I've been instructed and I've found myself obviously having no results. Yeah. And I seem to go in and out of that. Yeah. And it's very interesting. How do you not go to sleep? Yeah. Sleep is considered a distraction. It's considered a hindrance because um, when you are um, sleeping, your mind is just as busy. And um, so if you think about a coin, on one side you have daydreaming, distraction, theorizing. On the other hand, you have sleeping. And they're two sides of the same coin, which is both the mind that this happens sometimes also when the mind starts to get still, that even if you're not tired, it's like the mind doesn't know what to do with that. So it thinks, oh, time for sleep. And then also, so when you start to feel that sleep is coming on, um, first of all, you can uh, just notice the tendency to sleep. So don't try and push it away. Don't try and invite it in. So just noticing that there's a tendency to fall asleep. Sometimes if you are starting to fall asleep, just taking a deep breath. But if you're starting to fall asleep and you keep staying connected to the feeling of the breath, like anything else that arises, it's not going to last for too long. The feeling like you're going to fall asleep is going to happen for a few minutes and then it will start to dissolve. Yeah. A personal anecdote is uh, one time I was doing sitting meditation practice in a group and it was in a, a sort of a Zen format. So everything is black, dark, the lights are dim. And uh, it was 4 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I was so tired, so I was barely keeping my eyes open. And then I felt all this pain in my face and my forehead, going through my eyes, my nose. And then my, I opened my eyes and I was on the floor. <laughs> So I was sitting cross-legged and just went stiff. <laughs> it woke me up, actually. Yeah. And um, I was new at sitting at the time, and nobody in the group moved. And I realized that it had happened to all of them. <laughs> and they knew that I 
wake up from it. But <laughs> did anybody else have this with sleeping? Yeah. I found it interesting because I've been doing a lot of trying to open my chest wall up in yoga, so I know I'm tight there. But yeah. I, I, but I'm only aware of how tight I am in a vigorous kind of setting. Yeah. Like you, Joan, though, I, I was amazed at the beginning how often I would actually, if I had to concentrate on my breath, I would actually feel yeah. short of breath and it would actually feel almost a little bit of panic to it because I realized I have a hard time inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I would only be, as I just continue to follow it, that it would mm-hmm. just really relax. But I, mm-hmm. I would kind of manipulate it to kind of just try and relax during the in-breath. Yes. But I realized there's a lot more, uh, and I know it's a more active process, than expiration, but nevertheless, you know, it's, it's a little bit daunting when you're kind of, kind of you actually feel the shortness of it and the effort of inspiring. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if I stuck with it most of the time, then I would get to a really nice fluid breathing, and then sometimes I would get into a far enough state that the breathing would become very shallow and I would be somewhere else. And those were kind of very short periods. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. Over time, it's kind of like dialing in a radio station or something. And at, at, for a time, you'll go too far one way, trying to manipulate the breath, or you go too far the other way, which is like trying to stop your breathing or something. And it, somewhere in the middle, the breath automatically starts to settle down. And this is really the important point, is that your breath and your mind are two ends of the same axis. and they work together, and so the mind naturally wants to settle down. You may not believe me, but it does. And the breath also naturally wants to settle down because the nervous system always wants to move into an unconditioned state. That's the way it works. But usually before it moves into an unconditioned state, it freaks out for a while. The same is true with the mind. Before it starts to settle down, it will throw out all kinds of things like sleep or theories about what a good meditator you are or whatever. And the breath, too. It takes a while, but the breath will start to settle down. And you'll notice, and I'm sure some of you notice this, that when the breath actually starts to move on its own without too much manipulation, the mind really does start to settle down into the breath. They're kind of like two fish that swim in tandem. When one moves, the other moves. When the other moves, the other moves. Back and forth, back and forth. So if you try and use the mind to settle the mind, it doesn't usually work. Has anybody ever tried talking themselves into settling? (laughs) Uh, But if you go to the other end of the axis and use the breath to start to settle down the mind, it tends to work. It just takes a while for the mind to not go in there and want to manipulate the breath. So, we're going to talk about techniques where we're using the breath to do something. But it's important to remember that the first technique we've noticed, or we've worked with, is just noticing the breath. Letting the breath be. Inhaling, exhaling. So simple. Could it be any simpler, really? What else did you notice? I'm sure... You're not alone in whatever you're going to say. Yeah. I'm not sure if 
this is like cheating or but I find that the way I can settle myself best is to listen to the sound of the breath internally yes and so that's what I I hang on to mm-hmm. and I, I find that I'm most able to settle if I'm just listening to it inside yeah. is that is that a good thing to be doing or yeah. or is that just another distraction in a way it's fine I think that to get the inner ear to open to the breath, you have to make a little bit of sound with the breath. Right. And I think that would be considered some manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, because then what you were saying before about that sort of in-between, yes. like sometimes I would catch myself, how to, how to say it, I would catch myself being completely unaware of the sound of my breath yes and I'd just be settled right and I'd say yes. oh I'm settled <laughs> <laughs> and so then I'd lose yeah. it but it would be like like walking along and all of a sudden I I've dropped into some other state yes I felt I don't know it was almost like there were two different places so Do you want to stand up just so that everybody can hear you? I was, um, I don't know, I, it's a very difficult thing to explain, but I felt yeah. that there were sort of, and then when I, I would get to the one place and I think, you know, that that's sort of, I think where I'm supposed to be, and then I, and I go, then I go somewhere else, like, as if it was like I was being drawn away from that place, and then I'd go back. Mm-hmm. So it was like, I, I really felt sort of the distinction between the two. Yes. So, let's back up a little bit to our intention in this exercise. We're trying to leave something alone. How's it working? It's hard to just feel something and leave it alone. Completely, just leave it alone. Yes. And secondly, um, the leaving it alone wakes up awareness so that we can simply be present with what is actually there without doing something about it. And that's why we call this technique mindfulness meditation, because we're trying to be mindful or we're trying to bring ourselves back to recall the present moment, to return again and again to the present moment. And when you're even slightly elaborating on something or sculpting what's happening in the present moment, that's not being present with what's actually there. It's being present with what's arising with a little bit of interpretation or a little bit of sculpting or a little bit too much technique. The paradox is you need a lot of technique to do this because of the momentum of conditioning. And if you're a perfectionist, it's just going to be suffering. (laughs) And a lot of therapists are perfectionists. Because the perfectionist doesn't understand karma, which is that whenever you take an action, there's going to be an effect. Perfectionists are always trying to fix the effects of their action. 
this never works. This is what keeps perfectionism going. Perfectionism doesn't actually want to get anything perfect. So, what would you do? So again, you're, we're not trying to get perfect here. We're just trying to, as Winnicott says, be good enough. Good enough meditators. Oh, there's breath. Okay. Was there? Did you have a question yeah. or a comment? Yeah. Do you want to stand up? Do you get the stage where you can hear the just hear it? Because I I meditate a lot and we meditate for a long time, so I usually hear the the song Mm -hmm. and. so I just want, I started hearing it when I was doing this type of meditation, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that comes into it after. Sure. Yeah, actually one of the things you'll notice is that in this practice, the senses actually start to wake up, and you find that you become much more sensitive to sound, to smell. It's kind of like, has anybody here ever been camping? go camping for a couple weeks and the senses just start to open up. Or if you ever practice meditation on a silent retreat, when you add not talking to that, the senses open up and then you have even more energy with which you can use the senses. Because most of the time they're just operating again out of these conditioned patterns of habit. A couple more comments. Yes? I thought I was quite easily distracted by the external sounds around and it was hard to find 20 minutes when that was you know, like lawn cutting and people doing things that kind of thing. I found that it was challenging for me not to get caught up in what else was going on. Yeah. The first time I ever took some meditation classes was in a rural setting had to drive there, and it's a big, big deal for me. And then I got there, and the sitting practice started, and just as it started, the bell, you know, they have a bell, and it goes, gong, the bell rings, and right after the bell rang, tractors started up, sawing. They were actually building a monastery next door. So for the whole weekend of sitting, all you would listen to was the sound of construction. <laughs> and... Um, It was a good practice because it's a reminder that you're trying, you're not trying to get into some special state. You're trying to be present with what's actually happening. And the mind, and and you know what? Sometimes all that distraction is better than silence because if it was silence, you'd find some other distraction. And it's like people get on a meditation retreat and Someone's making your food for you. Maybe the teacher's pretty good. There's no voicemail. You don't have to do anything. And, and you, can't, you can't be there. It drives people off the wall. Because there's nothing to do. And that's the point. So you welcome the sound. We're going to talk about sound. Well, uh, I was um, just actually going to talk about the same thing because... I, I, I had the same experience, so neighbors, kids, you know, all kinds of noises. And um, at first, uh, that bothered, you know, like, and, and then I, 
began to realize that I, I had a kind of a physical feeling about it, like it was, um, the sound was hitting, you know, like physically hitting me, and, and I was in turn physically trying to keep it away. And then I finally decided, no, I'm going to let it go through me, which was, you know, I mean, it just the idea of just let it go through you uh, appealed to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that seemed to work, like, mm-hmm. but I, I did have to keep the image in my mind of mm-hmm. being something through which sound could pass. Mm-hmm. So I figured, oh, okay, well, that's probably not <laughs> as good as it needs to be. But it, yeah. it did seem to kind of solve the thing because I was, like I said, I was kind of, you know, fighting the sound off yes. somehow, which yeah. made me feel physically tense and stuff. Yes. I taught a retreat this summer in Greece, in Crete. And the south side of Crete is extraordinarily windy in the summertime. So windy that we have a three-year-old, and if you if you weren't holding his hand, he'd just get blown away. <laughs> and that's just how it is, you know, most of the day long. And um, after the first week, we found ourselves tired all the time because all day you're kind of fighting this wind, you know. And uh, then halfway through the retreat, which is two weeks, at the end of the first week, we did a meditation practice where we sat outside in the wind. And literally, the wind was so strong that day that if you didn't feel your own sense of gravity, the wind would actually push you. Sometimes you'd see sheep being blown across the hill. <laughs> yeah. You wake up in the morning, there's olives all over the ground. Um, but what happened, what, you know, what we did in that meditation halfway through was instead of fighting the wind, allow your body to actually receive the wind, to receive this feeling of wind as if it's coming right through you. And there is something that happens where you can actually receive this experience of wind and instantly that day and for the rest of the week, it, there was, the wind actually gave us energy rather than taking energy because you're not fighting it. You know, it's like that sound, you know, it's like sitting in meditation and then finally your refrigerator shuts off and you go, like when this fan will shut off, you go. Yes? When I learned to meditate, you always say to me to incorporate some not to quite so if the sound comes, you sound Yes. And I would include sound and sensations in the body. Because a sound is literally a sensation in the ear. That's what's there. That's what you breathe with. Otherwise, your meditation practice will be extremely distressing. Yes. I guess... Just going back to a comment that you made earlier on about have you ever tried to use the mind to quiet yourself or calm yourself? Yeah. So I guess I was a bit confused by that because similarly to the comment just recently about how, you know, there's this awareness you're having like a little dialogue in your head while you're attempting to focus on your breath. Mm-hmm. And that for some people that help them, right? So I guess I'm trying to um, figure out 
the difference between me saying because I had a similar experience with something was happening and I mm -hmm. started to feel a little bit uneasy and then I thought that's just what's happening right now. And yes. as soon as I said that to myself, I relaxed. So my mind in that instance helped me. Yet it's a thought that then I was like noticing that I was noticing that I was noticing. <laughs> And so I guess I'm trying to sort of the difference between <laughs> the mind manipulating and not helping and yes. the mind saying it's okay. Well, you're using your mind. Right. That you can reflect on it to a certain degree. I mean, in a way, this is victim consciousness, is the inability to name something. You know, it's just being caught up completely as a victim of whatever is moving through you, as opposed to getting just enough distance at first that you can name what's going on. The point is, is that the naming that's happening, which I think you referred to a little bit, is, you know, when you're talking to yourself about your experience, um, a, there's a little bit of a remove from the experience. So it's important that the language that you use to talk to yourself about yourself having an experience is really basic and just kind of like a breath. You say, oh, lost breath. Come back again. Ah, there it is. So it's just... It's almost like your language is a bit more a little this way, a little that way. Oh, that's pretty good. That's okay. Ah, oh, that's... Oh, yeah, come back to the breath here a little bit. It's not, oh, it's ridiculous, I can't ever do this. My father was like this. I don't want to be like him if I turn over. Yeah. Bad mindfulness. Bad therapy, too. <laughs> One more. Yeah. Well, that, that corresponds to what I'm, I'm doing with uh, holding my breath. I'm holding on, you know, and then I say, well, I'm holding my breath, so I shouldn't do that. Then I'm mm -hmm. thinking about trying not to hold my breath. So then yeah. I get caught up in all that. Yeah. I'm getting, I feel stuck, actually. Yes. So, yeah. I guess I have to just be this stuff. Mobilization is It's one of the reasons why I keep stressing feeling. Feel breathing. Just feel that it's happening. You don't have to make it a certain way. It will work. Just feel that there is breathing happening and let the breath take over a little bit. And I promise it will work. Or your money back. Because <laughs> I had this weird experience when I was walking through the park and I was thinking about the seedless feeling stuff. And yeah. I saw this tree, you know, standing there. I said, the tree doesn't have any problem. Being a tree, someone looking at this tree that has no problem doing what it does, and yet oh, here I am, all caught up. And of course, now I was thinking about that, so yeah. you know, I'm gonna <laughs> stuck on that. So, I don't know. Yeah. Just be like a tree. Well, that's what I thought, but then it's giving myself these instructions, which I'm not sure that's. I think that's what I'm doing wrong. Right. I say that. You know what I'm saying? So I should just be. Yeah. 
I know it's out of style, but tree hugging is good for your meditation practice. <laughs> it's not good for your persona necessarily, but it's good practice. Okay. Clinic in clinical work, we know that clinical work doesn't work when you ask somebody to describe their experience and you get their interpretation of their experience or you get their analysis of their experience or you get their theories about their experience. And in a way, what we're trying to hone in clinical work is to get close to the reality of somebody's experience. And likewise, what we're trying to do in this mindfulness experiment is to try and get close to the feeling of the breath without our theories about breathing, without it needing to be a certain way, without the super ego meditation teacher coming in and saying, no, 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 yes, yes, yes. Just trying to actually feel our experience. It's very, very simple. And what that cultivates in the therapeutic relationship is that the patient is able to stay with their experience for longer periods of time to see what is in that experience and to feel that experience. And if you're talking about the experience, to talk about the experience without coming out of it so much. Likewise, the clinician needs to do the same thing, which is to stay with somebody else's experience and their own experience without coming out of it too much. And this is a great challenge. Has anybody felt this challenge before? <laughs> so can you describe what the challenge is to you? Has anybody ever struggled with this? What does this mean in someone else's language? Do you want to stand up for me? Um, just what comes to mind is the struggle of of staying with, um, with someone that I'm working with and staying with where they're at and with their experiences. Um, sort of the fundamental difficulty of staying with any experience is that um, um, something I want to fix or change or I have aversion to or um, I can't tolerate the being myself or can't tolerate in them or, or um, so I think that it's the same it's the same things that pull me out of my own awareness very often that, that I live in somebody else. And um, so whatever my limits are has to be or or because this ego comes in and I want to be the one that changes things or the one that fixes things or whatever I have a question. I just want to know what kind of language 
get a therapist to use in session to help the client to stay with their experience. Yeah. That's a great question. And one of the things we're going to explore together, too, is um, not only the problems with language, but how to use language a little bit more creatively than we use language. And I think that started last week when we were talking about anxiety. And the problem when you label anxiety as anxiety because it creates anxiety. And so as soon as you make the label, you've actually put a box around something and then you see something within that box. And sometimes that's really helpful. And sometimes it also gets in the way. And what happens is because it's easy most of the time to put things in boxes, because that's what the mind likes to do, um, the boxes tend to create separation. And we don't see that we're doing boxes. We think that that's actually what's happening. And we don't see that we're seeing things through rose-colored glasses or green-colored glasses. You think the Emerald City is green because you're wearing green glasses. Let's try another little meditation technique together that I think will tie into what we're talking about. So, come sitting on the front edge of your chair. Bring your hands down onto your thighs and let your eyes close softly. For those of you that have a more formal meditation practice, if you do anything else with your eyes, like keep them open, that's fine too. Otherwise, just close your eyes softly. Tongue quiet. Knowing that you're breathing or not breathing. And let's begin letting the inner ear open and as you let your ears open, notice sound. You may notice predominant sounds like the sound of the fan or the sound of my voice. And you might also notice more subtle sounds, maybe in your body or out in the distance. And with the breath in the background, see if it's possible to be receptive to sound. tendency of the ear is to go after sound. 
So see if it's possible to turn your ear into a microphone. So instead of going after sound, let the ear become a microphone and just let sound come to you, come to the ear. Not picking and choosing sounds, not following sounds, just letting sound come to the ear. If you get distracted, come back again to receptive listening. Not going after sound, but just letting sound come and touch the ear. Notice how when you hear a sound, there's a tendency to label it. See if it's possible to hear sound, and maybe even momentarily to hear sound without language. Just leaving sound to be sound. Letting sound be sound without having to do something with the sound. Treating all the sounds as equal. Just letting sound be there around the ear. Without preference, without picking and choosing. Perhaps even without language.
Now let's take a deep inhale, a long exhale, and then let the eyes open. What did you notice in that little experiment without editing? I, uh, I had to laugh when I started to. Do you want to stand up or so? I started to laugh when uh, when I heard you mention labeling because I had just noticed that I was labeling, and uh, so that was a useful time, helpful time for you to mention that. And I also noticed that um, that I was happy that we were doing a listening meditation because I like that, and I think I realized why I liked it. And I realized that I'm a little bit like the sound police; that it becomes a game, and that even if I'm trying to be receptive to the sound and not go out, I'm still always happy if I hear a different sound, and I'm sort of aha, aha, another sound, another sound, sort yeah. of because. And sort of noticing that I'm doing it, I'm aware that I'm being successful. So I'm sort of becoming a perfectionistic listener. So that was so I had that insight as I was sitting and doing it this time. Oh. So that was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. This is how we get our exercise. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Trying to figure out the sound. Being analytical about Alistair, I'll get that. I wonder if anybody hears that low rung there. So I'm just being analytical about it. I think yeah. that's the thing that I noticed. Yeah. So, yeah, again, the yeah. same reaction when you mentioned that. It's like, ah, okay. Yeah. Just listen. Go yeah. and try to pick out what it is. Being analytical, did you catch that? Yeah. I actually found it a lot easier. Um, I found I wasn't labeling as much that I was better able to stay with the sensation. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it was easier than staying with the breath. Mm -hmm. Did anybody else feel that it was easier than staying with the breath? Yes, much. Much. A <laughs> couple of other people. And then we'll analyze it. Mm -hmm. I was just aware of uh, different levels of sound. And one sound it just wouldn't go to my ear. I felt it going over my eye and my forehead. Yeah. But not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I noticed that layering to the sounds, and then they would disappear, and I and I be lost somewhere, and then I realize oh, I'm lost somewhere. Where am I? And I and then I come something back. But I also found that uh, the sounds were sort of. Um, Quiet sounds, and then when you would speak, mm -hmm. um, it, it sort of sent a little bit of a shockwave to my system because yeah. it was very, um, it was louder. And yeah. Staccato. Yeah. I don't usually speak this loud. <laughs> it shocks me also. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you notice 
the way that this technique is the same as the breath technique, but that the object of our awareness is different. So in the first technique, we're trying to be receptive to the feeling of the breath without doing something with it. And now we're doing the same thing with the ear, that we're noticing sound and letting it be sound. So there's no such thing as noise. Noise would be sound plus interpretation. So just trying to experience sound. Did any of you do this momentarily, even without language, where there's just listening? And um, the listening becomes so receptive that sound exists without doing something with it. And the interesting thing about the technique is that, or the interesting effect of the technique, is that you notice also that it's hard to listen receptively. That most of the time we listen and we label very quickly. And we actually think that the thing we're listening to is that label. As opposed to just being touched by this direct experience of sound. It's like if you like to listen to the sound of birds when you're walking and then you start memorizing, you know, that's such and such a call, that's such and such a call, that's such and such, you know, that's a sparrow, that's a finch, that's an eagle, that's a crow. And then after a while, if you get really good at memorizing which is which, it's hard to enjoy walking through the woods because you know everything, you know, and it's harder to get touched. You know, I have a friend who's a musician and he just said to me recently that, uh, he just came back from a meditation retreat, and uh, it's the first time just being quiet. And uh, he said he realized that um, he hasn't been able to listen to music for years because he can only hear music through very specific paradigms. And you could say this about clinical work sometimes, that sometimes it's hard to really have a direct experience of what's happening because we're filtering it in all kinds of ways And in these simple techniques, we're noticing we're even filtering feeling breathing or just being able to hear sound, that the mind's tendency is always to put what's happening in a context as fast as possible. So we're going to take a break now. And after the break, we're going to talk about how to use these techniques in clinical practice.